You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, in this series of messages, what we're really doing is we're, we're taking a look at how it is that God involves himself in the, the details of our everyday lives. And that's important because if we know what God is up to in the flow of life, then we have a better chance of knowing how best to cooperate with him. Uh, this past fall, my wife and I were driving on a freeway in Texas when suddenly there was this loud explosion and the windshield of our rental car just shattered. Now I was able to, to slow down, pull off to the side of the road. This is a, a picture of what that windshield looked like. So you can see how shocking that was. Uh, what had happened is a semi-truck that I was passing, uh, the air brakes of that truck uh, failed exploded and sent a, a piece of metal, a metal part, flying into our windshield. Now, why did that happen? We're, we're talking about the details of life and what God might be doing. So here's a detail. Why did that happen? Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways to explain what happened. Uh, you could uh, just explain the facts, kind of the science of what had occurred. It really was a, a matter of physics, um, metallurgy, you know, metal part failed, um, physics, piece of metal traveling at a high rate of speed, impacted glass, this is what you get. I think you probably could reduce the, the arc or the, the traveling uh, position of that metal, and you could probably reduce it all to some kind of physics formula. But when we got off to the side of the road, <clears throat> the first thing Rebecca said, once we kind of calmed down enough to begin to talk, she, she looked at the kind of the the shards of glass on the inside, and the concaved nature of that um, windshield. And she said, I am so grateful that that metal object or whatever it was didn't come through the glass and strike you. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful too. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I'm grateful that I didn't lose control uh, at 80-some miles an hour and I was able to slow down and pull off to the side of the road, even though I couldn't see really well in front of me. Now, we both use the word gratitude or grateful. Now, grateful isn't a, a science word. It's not a physics word. It, it's a personal word. You, you say you're grateful if someone has done something helpful or kind to you. And the reason we use the word grateful, and if you listen to people talk, especially in moments like this, you'll hear the word grateful used quite often. And it's because we, we all seem to think, even if we won't admit it, we all seem to think that there's something more going on in this world and what happens than just the science of it, than just the physics. The physics is going on, science is happening, but we all seem to know that there's something bigger happening. And so there's another way to describe what happened on that day last fall, and that is the, the God who set up physics and science is involved in the details of our life. Yes, um, parts wear out and break. Yes, metal shatters glass. Yes, I didn't panic and lose control. But we were both grateful because we know beyond the physics and the driving, there is a God that is involved in the details of life. Jesus makes this very clear many places. One of his examples of the, the detail at which God is involved, Jesus says that even when sparrows fall, it doesn't occur outside of God's care, outside of the Father's care. What Jesus is saying is 
The Father isn't just watching. He isn't just observing. He cares. And he is involved in the details of life, even to the level of a sparrow falling to the ground. He goes on to talk about a hair falling from your head. That's detail. He's involved at that level. So then that brings us back to our windshield incident. So why did God's care include our windshield being shattered? Well, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. And that's not the only time something's happened to me in my life where I've thought, I don't get it. If God is involved in the detail and nothing is outside of his care, this doesn't feel like a caring move. This doesn't feel like something that God should have allowed to happen. So why did it happen? We don't know. And not knowing makes our responding difficult. If we knew why, it would be easier to, to respond and to know how to respond. But the truth is God's plan is far too complicated and much larger than we have the mental capacity to grasp. Even if he told us every why, it would be too big for us to remember or respond to. So instead of telling us why, God in the pages of Scripture focuses on telling us what. When something happens, the big question is, what should I do? Not, why did this happen? It's natural for us to say why, but you're not going to get a lot of answers from God on the whys. You are going to get a lot of answers from God on the whats. What should I do? And that's the focus of this series of messages this summer. We're calling it the Divine Conspiracy. We're looking at what Jesus spoke in three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in these three chapters, Jesus describes common situation after common situation that we all find ourselves in, and then he tells us not why these things happen, but what should you do when you find the details of your life in this category, in this kind of situation? God is always up to something. We don't know the details. We can't understand all the details. That's why we're calling this a divine conspiracy. This is not a human conspiracy. Human conspiracies can get pretty complex. Divine conspiracies, beyond our comprehension. Behind the scenes, God is plotting and planning good. And he invites us to be his co-conspirators. Not because we can understand everything about the plan, but that we can be well-informed enough and with his help, we can play our part. We can respond in a way that is part of what God is doing in this world. Now, this invitation is extended to us through Jesus Christ. And these three chapters summarize the invitation. If we follow Jesus, our life ceases to be just all about us. We become part of the divine conspiracy. Now, Jesus begins in these chapters by inviting us to join him in this divine conspiracy by being his salt and his light in this world. And we looked at what that meant last week. Now, we, we turn a corner on the theme for the rest of what Jesus talks about in these three chapters. Now, Jesus begins to go through scenario after scenario after scenario, situation after situation, and gives us specific things that we can do, how we can respond in this moment and in that moment and in this challenge. 
But he begins by making a pretty startling statement. And it turns out this is a key to applying what God says in all of these scenarios. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't be able to be a part of what heaven is doing here on earth. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, at first glance, this appears to disqualify every one of us. Because if, if you were going to compare yourself and how good you are to, to someone else, the last person you would want to have a moral competition with would be a Pharisee. Because Pharisees, they were, they were the religious elites of the day. They were full-time, fanatical keepers of God's law. In fact, they were so serious about keeping God's laws that they had come up with rules about God's laws. I mean, just think about it. There are a lot of words in the Bible. They had added many more words than that to try to add rules to every rule that God had given. And it really was getting pretty crazy. For example, you know, God talks about tithing, you know, giving 10% of the income he gives you. Well, they had come up with rules about how to make sure that you were giving 10% of your spices back to God. I mean, this particular spice, this is how you count it out. You weigh this one, you count this one. All these rules just around tithing. And it went on and on. It was crazy. And now Jesus is saying, if you want to join in my plan to change the world, you're going to have to do better than them? Well, what... What do you think the response was? Well, it's the response that we would have now, and that is, well, that's hopeless. Well, then Jesus goes on to make it even more hopeless for all of us. He takes the laws of God, his laws, law after law, and he explains the heart behind these laws and makes it even harder to do. He starts out in the one we're going to look at today. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. The law of you shall not murder. He says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Oh, man. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then he goes on, the one we're going to look at next week. The command to not commit adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So these two are just some of the examples that we're going to look at. But these two come from the Ten Commandments. You know, the commandment, do not murder. You know, the, the number of murders in any culture is always a tragedy. But it's, it's relatively a small number of people that that murder in any culture. It's always tragic, but it's relatively small. But if you talk about the number of people who have gotten angry with somebody and said something out of rage verbally to them, well, now you're talking about everybody, not just a small subset. And you may not have committed adultery, but if you're talking about someone who has Lusted outside of the context of marriage? Well, once again, everybody. 
So what is Jesus doing here? What he's saying is that the Pharisees had made a, a mistake of thinking that all God was interested in was just external compliance, obedience. And Jesus is saying, no, no, sin is, is not just the behavior. There's a heart behind the behavior, and that's what God is really after. You see, sin is kind of like a, an iceberg. The part that you see is much smaller than the part that you can't see. And like an iceberg, the real weight and power are below the surface. It's in the heart that the real sin takes place. The inside you is where the real moral weight of your life resides. And that is where real change occurs. And God's plan is to change our hearts, not just improve our behavior and make us just a little bit nicer. And so the Pharisees who had dedicated their lives to this above the waterline, above the surface acts of righteousness, were off base. They had focused on doing what is right. That, the word righteous, the root word, describes what it means. To do what God says is right. But now Jesus is saying that righteousness goes deeper than just the doing, than just the behavior. Righteousness also includes right thoughts, right words, and right desires. Well, under this expanded definition of righteousness, no one then is ever going to be qualified to partner with God in this divine conspiracy. So what is Jesus saying? He's bringing us to an important why in the road, and he's inviting us to make a righteousness choice. And this is the first point of the outline that we're going to look through this morning. There are two righteousness choices that Jesus wants us to be aware of. And that's because there really are only two ways to address a, an unrighteous person, which is all of us. There's only two ways you can address your righteousness problem. Way number one is your goodness. You you ramp up your effort. Now, this is the first choice that makes sense to us and pretty much the place that everyone starts at. You ask anyone, okay, so if, if God had a plan and he wanted you to be a part of it, can you think of something that would need to happen in your life in order to be a part of God's divine conspiracy, to cooperate better with him? I think everyone would think of some moral aspect of their life that they would need to improve. That's our kind of our first instinct. Okay, we're, we're not doing right, and then we just need to crank up the effort. We need to work harder at being good. Now, Jesus knows this instinct, which is why he tells them and us that if we want to take this approach, which is the normal approach, then we are going to have to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. What's the response to that? Well, that's impossible. Exactly. That's the point. You and I will never be good enough to be a part of God's plan to change the world on our own power. I mean, just, just be honest. You and I will just keep messing things up. See, this is the divine conspiracy we're talking about. This is not the everybody do the best you can conspiracy. This is the divine conspiracy. And conspiracies are not just a set of general goals. They are detailed plans over a long period of time. And in order for conspiracies to work, 
the details of the plan have to be executed pretty precisely. That's just human conspiracies. You take a divine conspiracy, a behind-the-scenes plan, well, that takes human conspiracies to another level of precision. The divine conspiracy is carried out by God with flawless precision, and it requires exact execution. One moral failure can't be tolerated to be a part of the divine conspiracy. So Jesus' point really is that none of us can up our moral game enough to be a part of what he is doing in this world. If just one lustful thought or one angry outburst disqualifies us from being a part of it, then what hope do we have? So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's slamming door number one, your goodness, so that he can show us what's behind door number two. And that is God's grace. These are the two righteousness choices. If you're going to pursue doing what is right, being a part of what God is doing in this world, you only have two options. Up your moral game, your goodness, or operate under God's grace. Now, we prefer, prefer door number one. The reason we prefer door number one is because of the possession. You know, the first two words indicate who owns what follows. Whose goodness? Yours. It's your goodness. You own it. It's not God's. Whose grace? God's grace. It's his to give. And here's the key of ownership. If you own it, you control it. We would prefer to be in control than not being in control. Even if we're not good enough, at least there's a, there's a sense of our own pride that calls us to say, well, then just do it. Up your moral game. Your goodness. Your, your. But if we've got to find ourselves in a position of waiting for God to give us help, that's vulnerable. We don't want to, we want to do that. This is why we will not arrive at door number two until we go through door number one and fail miserably at it. If someone thinks they're basically good, they will not accept God's grace. And that's why Jesus is saying, oh, you think you're good because you haven't murdered? Let's, let me, let me, let's go below the waterline and show you what really is going on here, what's really wrong. Okay, then none of us are good enough. And he does this over and over again. He describes the progression from door number one, your goodness, to door number two, God's grace. This is described in John chapter 117, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. It says, this, this really is a summary statement of, of the whole Bible. For the law was given through Moses. This is in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the progression. First this, and then this. Why? We would never accept number two if we hadn't tried and failed miserably at number one. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's what this is talking about. Why? Well, in part, so that we would know what is right and what is wrong, but also so that we would try to do what is right and fail. Now, if you were to ask a Pharisee 2,000 years ago how they were doing when it came to obeying the Ten Commandments, God's law, they would have responded with absolute confidence. But once Jesus explained the heart of these laws, no one 
if they believed him, no one was feeling good about their moral performance. But the thing about God's grace is it's, it's not God lowering his moral standards. It's not God saying, okay, you tried. Let's, you know, let's move the goalposts to something you can't accomplish. No, that's why what came through Jesus was grace and truth. Not grace at the expense of truth. The standards don't change. The truth of what God says is right and wrong never changes. It's grace and truth. This is why Jesus had to pay the price to offer us grace. If there hadn't been a price paid, if justice hadn't been satisfied on our behalf through his death, then it would have just been God saying, hey, no big deal, you tried. That's not real grace. It's grace and truth. So here's a working definition of grace. Grace is the power of God that can turn our sin and weakness into beauty and goodness. That's kind of a full comprehensive view of what grace is. A way to think of it is this. Grace is kind of like the hand of a parent holding the hand of a three-year-old as they are trying to form their letters. It's, it's the three-year-old that's, that's trying to make the moves, but they just they can't. So grace, the parent, is, is helping them learn to form their letters. So when a parent puts their hands over the three-year-old's hands and helps them form the letter A... Who made the letter A? Well, really both. And that's what grace says. What what comes out of our life isn't all us, and it isn't all God. It's actually mostly God with a little bit of us. We tend to think in reverse. We think it's a little bit of us, or, or mostly us, with a little kind of battery booster pack help from God. That's, if you really look at your life, that's not the way it is. It's, it's mostly God's help and a little bit of you. Now, we tend to think of grace as something that occurs after we sin. That's part of it, but that's not the whole of what grace is. You know, we, we think, okay, in God's grace, he forgives us. That's true. So we tend to think of grace kind of like a first aid kit. You know, you, if you've got a first aid kit, when do you use it? When you're bleeding, when you need it, when you're in need of a Band-Aid. And that, that's the way people often think of God's grace. Okay, I just sinned, I, I need forgiveness. So you take the grace Band-Aid, you stick it on the wound, and it, the bleeding stops. Now that is true, that's a part of God's grace, but it's just a part. I think a better way of thinking of God's grace, is it's, it's more designed to be like the food you eat that powers your entire life. Not just the emergency first aid kit that you use when you are bleeding. God's grace is desired to fuel our entire days. So let, let me give you an example of God's grace in my life this past week. A week ago today, in the evening, I began to look at my week. I had this sense, but I, I really began to look at the details of it. And I was struck by how much I had to accomplish and how little time I had to accomplish it. This is not a new experience, but it was a particularly full week for me. 
And whenever that happens, I, I, I feel an act, a kind of a panic begin to rise in me because these are not just things I'd like to get done. These are things that I have to get done. I mean, I can't stand up here on Sunday and say, you know what, I just didn't have time. <laughs> Come back next Sunday, we're going to sing another five songs. No, these are things that I, I, like this, that I had to get done. And I could begin to feel the panic rise in me. Now, maybe because I've done this so many times, I can now, I know my patterns well enough to know, okay, this is probably how my week's going to go. This is my common pattern. When I feel pressure to get a lot done, one of the things that I do is I just get short with people. Because people talk. And you can't get stuff done if people are talking to you. So if you're just, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. All right, great, thanks. Are we done? I don't say it, but that's when I'm like, can I, can I get back, you know? So I just get short with people. The saddest person I get short with is my wife. Uh, another thing that happens is I lose joy in the week. I just, I get so overwhelmed with what I have to do, I, I begin to trudge through all that I have to do with, and my joy just gets lower and lower and lower. And I kind of relegate joy to the next time I get to go on vacation. So that, I'll be joyful then, but for now I'm just going to be miserable because I got a lot to do. Now, you may be different. That's just the way I am. So I get joy. I, I get short with people. I lose my joy. And then guess what almost always happens? Someone irritates me. I get mad, and I say something I shouldn't say. I sin. Does that help me get more done? No, now I got a mess to clean up. So then I confess my sin, and then God's grace comes riding in, the band-aid is applied, I'm forgiven, and I'm grateful. That's what happens. That's that's my pattern. I run this. And I had a thought on, on Sunday night. I thought, you know what? I would like to access grace before I sin, not just after I sin. What if I access God's grace now? And so I began to journal a little bit about what what would that look like? What would it look like if God's grace helped me with my work? And that reminded me of a verse that I often refer to that I lived this past week. Here's the verse, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. It says, God is able, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Okay, so it's all grace. I love the extreme, all grace. It's not just, hey, here's, here's a teaspoon of grace. It's all grace. Abound to you, not just, you know, good luck with this little portion. Abound to you. So that what, in all things, would that include everything on my to-do list? All things is pretty inclusive, all things. At all times, would that include last week? Yeah. Having occasionally what I need, no, having all that I need, I might actually have the chance, with God's grace, to abound in every good work. There might be joy and more done than I thought I could ever do. So I prayed that, and I asked for God's grace, and I began to move through the week on Monday. So what happened is, Irritation rose, and whenever that happened, I would, as much as I could, I would stop, and I would ask God for grace. I would go through this verse again. 
And I had the image of his hands around mine helping me. And you know what happens with a busy week? Is anything ever added to a busy week? Always. Always things come up. And that's what happened to this week. More stuff came up. And when that happened, I would just say, God, I don't know how. I didn't know how I was going to get this done. Now I've got to add this to it. I don't know how I'm going to get that done. But you know, you say your grace is enough, and I'm going to ask for help. And God helped me. And I end this week, last week, with a clear sense of the fact that all that I was able to do was mostly God and a little bit of me. That's not a common thing for me. I'm working on doing that more. You see, if we are going to be co-conspirators with God, we're going to have to choose again and again and again to move into the future and its challenges with God's, relying on God's grace more than our efforts, more than our goodness. If we are operating out of God's grace more than our goodness, then we, that's when we have the best chance to do our part in the divine conspiracy. So why is Jesus making that he's laboring this point before he goes into all the situations of how we can be a part of what he's doing in this world? And that's because now if we've gone through door number one, our efforts, our goodness, failed at it, and we've now entered door number two, we have a chance to be a part of what God's doing. Now having done that, and by the way, you have to do this again and again, we just keep running back to room number one. And God says, fail, run back to room number two. It's as we do that, we get to be a part of what God's doing. So now, having made that very clear, Jesus goes on to explain how people living by his grace have the best chance to be a part of what he's doing in this situation or in that situation or in this other situation. And the rest of this series is going to be situational specifics. But if you don't understand that you can't do this by your own effort, you have to rely on God's grace you'll miss the power of really being a part of what God's doing. So having gone through room number one, we're now in room number two. Now we encounter the two conflict choices. This is the situation. Whenever conflict erupts, people are watching. All of these situations are dark moments in life that if you respond the way Jesus says you can respond by his help, you are light in that darkness. People will notice you're going to be different. You'll be light in this dark world. So let's look at what Jesus says about conflict. We already read it, but let's read it now in light of this idea. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Recently, I, I witnessed a two-second conflict. It was only two seconds because it occurred on a bike path and people were passing each other, so it was, it was about two seconds. I thought they were going to get off their bikes and it was going to turn into you know, a real thing. But it was just a two-second conflict. What happened is one guy slightly wove onto the other side of the path. The guy that was coming on the opposite lane yelled a profanity at him. Instantly, I mean, no filter, no thought, he yelled a profanity back at him. Two-second conflict. 
Now, in a moment, I don't know what those guys were thinking, but in a moment, they, were, they went from, you know, two or three to, like, ten on the anger scale. What had caused such strong passion? Well, the passion came from the fact that they both had a clear thought about who was right. Both of them were appealing to a standard of righteousness. I mean, bike righteousness, not really big deal, but still, what is right? What is wrong? Should you never cross the line, or is it okay in some occasions if you can get back? Whatever. That's, that's what they were, that was their passion about that. Some standard of right and wrong. Now, why do we have such passion about what is right and wrong? If you get angry, that's what it's about. Different issues, but, but you are furious because someone has done something wrong to you. You are absolutely sure about what's right and what is wrong in that situation. Why are we so passionate about that? It's because we were made in the image of God. And God thinks truth is really important. It's central. So we get angry because we know that truth is a big deal. We know that truth exists. We conflict because we can't agree on what the truth is. We can't agree on what is right and wrong. So what do you do? Well, the previous choice you've made, whether you're on the your own goodness plan or on God's grace plan, will completely shape the conflict choice that you make. Here are the two options. If you're on the your goodness plan, if you're in room number one, most likely you will attack. You're, if you're in the goodness room, you will attack. Most anger flows out of a heart that is self-righteous. You know, it's, it's on the my own goodness plan. If you see someone furious, they are self-righteous. They are taking whatever their standard right is wrong is, and they are imposing it with almost the idea that they're God, and they have the power to rule. They're self-righteous. Now, why, why would the goodness plan lead to that response? Well, when you're constantly trying to prove yourself, you're always keeping score. But if you're keeping score on yourself, which you are, that's usually kind of discouraging. So to take the focus off of how low your score is, you try to turn your attention to and find someone who's got a lower score. That's just human nature. You, you look, if you're a scorekeeper on yourself, you're a scorekeeper on everybody else. The reason is it helps you feel better about yourself without actually becoming better. So if you're on the your goodness plan, you can work at becoming gooder, better. That's hard. It's easier to feel better about yourself by so find someone who's not as good as you. That's what self-righteous people do. Let's put it, let's be honest, that's what we do. And Jesus exposes how damaging this is to people. You know, there are many ways that we attack each other. Sometimes it is physical. Most often it's verbal. We tend to think, hey, as long as it doesn't get physical, no harm. And Jesus makes the point, oh, no, that's a big deal. He uses the word that means nothing to us now, but back then it meant a lot to them. He uses the word raka. Without getting into too much detail, 
to translate to the culture of this day, this would be the cultural equivalent of telling someone that they're an idiot or a jerk. Just, just a one-word, idiot. That's Rocco. And we tend to think, hey, it's just an observation. It's not a big deal. Jesus says, actually, this is court-worthy. This is trial-worthy. Now, if you're thinking of taking something to court, it's a big deal because it's expensive to go to court. Jesus said, this is not a small deal. This, this is trial-worthy stuff, in my view. This is, this is very important. It's a big deal to put someone down. Well, then you go on to the next phrase that we do know, you fool. But again, if, if you look at the Greek word there and what was actually being referred to in that culture, what Jesus is saying is then we, we start with idiot, jerk, and then we go on to add an obscenity to that. That's what this is. The you fool is you then start swearing. You add an obscenity to it. And I'll, you know what that sounds like, right? You add an obscenity to further degrade the one that you're angry with. And Jesus says, you know what? If you, if you, keep, if you ramp it up to that level of contempt for people, Jesus says, God's going to take that personally. What he says is, you're in danger of hell. Hell is the ultimate and final separation of God from a person. What he's saying is, you know, if you start treating people like this, God's just going to pull back. He's going to separate from you. Why the big deal? It's just words. Well, let me ask you this. Why is murder the worst crime in our society? It's because of the value of human life, right? God feels the same way about verbal murder. It's because the human heart is of tremendous value. When we attack, we are undermining what God says is valuable. And we're also undermining what God is trying to do in the middle of the anger. He's trying to surface the truth. That brings us to option number two, the God's grace option. If you're in room number two, you have a chance to do this. Your focus is not attacking, but reconciling. You know, if I'm not going to try to prove my goodness because I'm relying on God's grace to do that, then I can and have a better chance to respond very differently to conflict because I don't need to defend myself. That's already been taken care of. Jesus is already defending me. I don't have to do that. So now I'm emotionally and mentally free to think about how might we fix this? How might we reconcile this? Jesus tells two stories that illustrate how we can be a part of what God is doing in conflict. First one, verse 23 through 24, says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Offering your gift at the altar was not a daily occurrence. It was annual at best. It was a rare and holy event. And you're doing this, and all of a sudden, an even bigger opportunity comes to mind. And that is, you remember a recent conflict with somebody. Jesus says, at that point... Drop everything, leave your gift, and go work on this relationship. Conspicuous by its absence in this story is any mention as to who the guilty party was. And that's being left off by purpose. Because if we think 
we're the offended party and they're the guilty party, we won't go to them. We'll wait until they come crawling to us. And Jesus is saying, basically, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters that there is a relational break and you need to see. You may not be able to repair this, but you need to put in every effort you can to reconcile this. The second story Jesus tells, a brief one, 25 through 26, those verses. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. What he's saying is conflict doesn't just get better. It gets worse. So the second story is on, you know, you're on your way to court. Jesus says, don't let it get that far. Settle matters. So when conflict erupts, God is trying to surface the truth. It's a golden opportunity. It's an invitation of grace. And what he's saying is don't get in the way by making it all about you. Don't act like God, the arbiter of all truth, and attack. If you attack them in anger, you're pointing to you as the source of truth, and you aren't. So anger is right. This kind of thing can't wait. But the question is, are you going to approach anger through door number one or door number two? Your goodness or God's grace? If you're trying to run your life on your own goodness, you're on your own. It's a fight. If you're looking to God's grace, you're in position to turn the challenges of life, like conflict, into a divine conspiracy moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the offer of your grace. Jesus, we thank you for the price that you paid with your own life to give us that grace. And we admit that having received that grace, many of us, we still deep in our hearts prefer our own efforts and to prove and defend our own goodness rather than just leave that with you and do the work of trying to reconcile. So I pray for all the conflict that's represented in this room right now. Some of it's very complicated. Some of it's been going on for years, maybe decades. God, I pray that you'd give each of us a sense of, of what we might be able to do next to move forward, not in attack, but in a desire for reconcile. Maybe it's just a prayer at this point. But God, help us to be your salt and your light in this world. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.